You are listening to a Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We encourage you to share this with friends and family, but ask that you do not edit it without the permission of the owners. This Bible Talk is designed to supplement belonging to a local church with its teaching and community, not to replace it. We pray this talk helps you love Jesus and become more like him. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are safe, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have belief in vain. For what I receive I pass on to you, as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Thank you, Nick. That's awesome. Um, I'm going to be preaching a sermon today on gospel-centered. I know you've been in Mark, but I will be, as you've just heard in 1 Corinthians, it's a bit of a topical sermon, so we'll be going to different parts of the Bible. The word gospel-centered, if you're a Christian, you might be aware, it has become a bit of a buzzword these days. Uh, Different people mean different things by it. Um, When we started the church, it was even uh, one of our core values, as you can see on uh, the banner. But what what, what, what does gospel-centered mean? What should it mean, rather? And so that's what I'm going to be exploring with us uh, this evening. If you are here and you are a Regen person, you would have already heard this sermon. Um, But you can just appreciate the finer intricacies uh, of the same sermon. So a bit about myself. I I first came to Australia in the year 2007. I was an international student. I came, that's me and my graduation. Um, I came born and bred in Malaysia. I studied business and commerce in Monash. And despite coming from a Baptist background, I ended up joining a predominantly Pentecostal, Asian Pentecostal church, uh, who were really big uh, on evangelism and church planting. But as the years went on and I was there, the the focus of the church began to shift to signs and wonders. So every every Sunday you go and then the sermon was on signs and wonders. It doesn't matter if it was Old Testament, New Testament, it was always on signs and wonders. And so I was getting uh, quite frustrated by this. And the climax of my frustration came uh, during Easter. So Easter, being a good mission-minded, disciple-making student, I brought several of my non-Christian friends uh, along to, to church. And I was expecting that for once, surely this year, the sermon is going to be about the gospel. And particularly the resurrection. That's what all Easter is all about. So Easter Sunday came, and my friends actually came, which was amazing. But then the sermon was on, surprise, surprise, or maybe not surprise, zing, on signs and wonders. And for all the years I've lived on this earth, that is still the only Easter service I've ever attended where the sermon did not mention the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. So I was a bit concerned, so was a friend of mine, and we, uh, he, he expressed his concern to the pastor at the time and said, you know, you know, we're a bit concerned here, pastor, you're not actually preaching the gospel, even on Easter Sunday, right? And then he said this to my friend, which is really 
memorable response, which I still remember till today, which is, he says, of course I don't preach the gospel. If I wanted to preach the gospel, I would be an evangelist, not a pastor. That's the evangelist's job to preach the gospel, not the pastor. Now, of course, I preach the gospel, but, you know, maximum once or twice a year. Don Carson likes to say that the first generation preaches the gospel, the second generation assumes the gospel, the third generation forgets the gospel, and the fourth generation rejects and even hates the gospel. And I believe that my former pastor at the time had moved from that first category to the second. He had assumed the gospel. Gospel was no longer the center of his life and ministry. Now, this is a common mistake that we also can make as Christians. We think that the gospel is primarily, or only rather, for evangelism and not for discipleship. We, we think that the, we need this gospel for our justification, but not for our sanctification. So how many of you here are, are first years at, at uni this year? Right. So you come to uni and you might think the gospel is like, these are the first year subjects everyone has to do. And then later on, you get to do advanced subjects that you really want to do. And that's how some people think of the gospel. Tim Keller famously says that the gospel is not the ABC of the Christian life, but it is the A to, he would say Z, uh, Z, because he's an American, but A to Z of the Christian life. So what what does that mean, though? It's a nice catchphrase. What does that mean? So I think... It means at least three things. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? It involves a deep understanding of gospel theology. It involves living out the implications of the gospel together to create gospel culture. And it also involves a growing ability to apply the gospel in all of life with gospel fluency. So let's begin with gospel theology. So what, what do we mean by this? What do we mean by gospel theology? Now, put simply, we believe that the gospel is the center of theology, is the key to understanding the meaning of the whole Bible. What exactly is the gospel, though? Now, people might have different ways of defining it, but here is my simple two-step answer. So think of your camera. These days, we all have phone cameras. Now, other than the default setting, you've typically got a wide lens, and you've got a zoom lens. And in the same way, I think that we can have a wide lens and zoom lens definition of the gospel. So let me start with a wide lens uh, definition of the gospel, uh, a panoramic view of the gospel, if you, if you want. So the, I think that the entire Bible story is the big story of the gospel. The story of the whole Bible is a story of how God is saving a people for himself. And you could say the big story of the Bible can be summarized in its most simple form into four stages. And they are creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or or, or new creation. So you start the Bible, Genesis 1, you learn that God is the creator who created the entire universe, but with humanity as the pinnacle of his creation. We are the only ones made in the image of God. God made the world 
perfect. He saw that it was good, very good. That's creation. Well, sadly, we don't have to wait long for the next stage. By Genesis 3, we see that humanity was tempted by the serpent and disobeyed God, bringing sin and death into the world. And this damages humanity's relationship with God, with each other, as well as with the rest of the world. That's the fall. But because of His love and His grace, God does not leave us to die in our sin. And the rest of the Bible from that chapter onwards is a long story of God's rescue mission that culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is the story of redemption. Through His death and resurrection, sin and death are defeated. And as And as people, we are called to repent and believe in Him, trusting that a day will come when Jesus, who ascends to heaven, will return to restore all creation and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. This is what we see at the very end of the Bible, the last two chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. And so you have it. That's the the wide lens answer to what the gospel, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, let's go to a zoom lens answer of the gospel. So, if you, got, you know how we have these four stages. Let's zoom in to that third phase, the third phase, redemption. I think uh, Tim Keller is right when he says, at the heart of all the biblical writers' theology is redemption through substitution. And one of the best definitions of the gospel in the Bible we can find is in that passage that Nick has just read for us, 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read a section for us from verse 3. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas than to the twelve. So what do I mean when I say the zoom lens of the gospel? I'm talking about here the center of the gospel, and the center of the gospel is Jesus Christ. There are lots of things that we can say about Jesus, but there are three central things that we must always have, and they are His life, His death, and His resurrection. To use theological terms, we talk about the incarnation, God became flesh. We talk about the atonement, Christ dying for our sins. And we talk about the resurrection, that Christ gives us new life, eternal life. Another way to to summarize these three phases is the cradle, the cross, and the crown. So hopefully that helps you have a good summary of the gospel. Now, if you are here today, though, and you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I just want to speak to you for a moment directly. My friends, I want to tell you today that whatever problems you're facing in this life or you face throughout your life, the biggest problems that you face are sin and death. We look around the world today, we see a lot of brokenness, from anxiety to 
abuse, from COVID to conflict, from depression to drug addiction. All of these things come from what the Bible describes as the fall, the the second stage, as we said before. But Jesus has come to redeem you. In his death, he suffered the punishment that you deserve, you and I deserve for our sins. In his resurrection, he has overcome death once and for all. And one day, he will return to restore all things and to resurrect those, all those who have trusted in him. And what he calls you to do today is to repent, which means to turn away from your sin and turning away from a life without God, to believe in him, to turn towards him in trust and to give your life to him. And if you do that, if you repent And if you put your trust, you believe in Him, He promises to do two things. He promises to cleanse you of all your sins and He promises to give you eternal life. So I ask you today, would you please consider what Christ offers you freely today? And if you want to know more, there's a lot of great people you can speak to here from Karen to Kiralee and Joel. You can even come talk to me at the end. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15, from verse 1 now. It says, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So let me ask you this question. So this is a, 1 Corinthians is a letter, right? Paul wrote this letter. Who did he write this letter to? Who's he talking to? Is he writing to Christians or non-Christians? It's Christians. Corinthian Christians, right? And yet he writes to make clear for them the gospel I preached to you, the gospel which you received, past tense, and by which you are being saved, present tense. So did you notice that? That the gospel has a role in the ongoing work of salvation in the lives of Christians. Theologians have a term for this, progressive sanctification. For Paul, the gospel was central. For Paul, the gospel was both for Christians as well as for non-Christians. For Paul, the gospel is for both justification and sanctification. So that's the first thing. Gospel centrality involves a deep understanding of gospel theology. But gospel centrality also involves a living out of the implications of the gospel together to create gospel culture. So I'm also involved with an organization called uh, City to City Australia and the the leader, Andrew Cade. He says that there's nothing worse than the zeal of a convert. No, wait wait a minute. What, What does that mean, though? Shouldn't that be, there's nothing better than the zeal of a convert? Doesn't Karen Morris want zealous converts out here? Well, this is what I think, what's what he means. So, you know, on Christian social media, there's been something called reform thug life memes, so you might know what I'm talking about. And these are a combination of quotes from reform, or some might say gospel-centered preachers, with the attire of hip-hop artists. Uh, When done well, these 
can be quite entertaining at times. However, in my experience anyway, they have sometimes been used with an air of arrogance and self-righteousness. And there's a great irony and a great tragedy that here you have the ones who claim to be gospel-centered looking down on those who they consider not gospel-centered. The ones who, cl- who claim to know the go- doctrines of grace yet show no grace to others. So how can it be that gospel theology can lead to such anti-gospel arrogance? How's that possible? But this, friends, is the depth of the depravity in our hearts. This is how cunning the devil is, that he can turn such beautiful gospel truths into a weapon to beat others with, with an anti-gospel self-righteousness. This is the wrong type of zeal of a convert. Uh, In his book simply titled The Gospel, uh, Ray Ortland writes that gospel theology must also create gospel culture. And he gives us uh, these three equations. He says, gospel doctrine minus gospel culture equals hypocrisy. He says, gospel culture minus gospel doctrine equals fragility. But gospel doctrine plus gospel culture together equals power. And he also says that gospel theology plus an anti-gospel culture is ultimately doctrinal denial. And he points us to an example from the Bible. And that's in Galatians 2. If you're fast, you can turn there. The example of Paul's clash with Peter. From verse 11, it says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For he regularly ate with Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. So what's what's happening here? So Cephas, this guy, is actually Peter's Hebrew name. He was happy to hang out to eat with Gentiles. He had some bacon, you know, barbecue pork. And then his Jewish mates rock up, and he acts like he's never touched the stuff, and he doesn't want to, anything to do with them. And notice how strong Paul's language is here. He says, he stood condemned. He called it hypocrisy. Now, not to mention, this is significant, right? This is the only, think about it, this is the only time in Scripture we have an apostle versus apostle showdown. But notice in verse 14, this is the key. Look at verse 14. He says this, they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. So ask yourself this, did Peter, is there any evidence that Peter actually preached a different gospel? Not at all. But by his actions, though, he was deviating from the true gospel. With his actions, he was denying the true gospel that he preached with his mouth.
So brothers and sisters, if you want to be here in CU, a gospel-centered community, I think you must not only understand and believe the glorious truths of the gospel, you must also live lives worthy of the gospel. Gospel theology without gospel culture is hypocrisy. But gospel theology plus gospel culture has the power to transform Monash University, the city of Monash, city of Melbourne. Do you believe that? So, let's keep going. To be gospel-centered, we must have gospel theology and gospel culture. But we also must have gospel fluency. And by that, I mean a growing ability to apply the gospel to all of life. So gospel fluency is a term that was uh, coined by a guy called Jeff van der Stelt, the founder of the Soma movement. And he likens uh, the gospel to a language that you can learn to speak. And so gospel fluency is our ability to speak the truths of the gospel to the everyday stuff of life. So what I want to show you is that this is actually in the Bible, right? That there are examples of gospel fluency, whatever, or whatever you want to call it, in the New Testament. So, too often, we only use the law to motivate people to live Christian lives. So the Bible says in the Ten Commandments, do not steal, so don't steal. Easy. Job done, right? But Paul, what we see, that's not his strategy. He uses the law, yes, he does, as well as the gospel. Let me give you two examples. Again, we're going to be really quick. Ephesians 5. This is the example of marriage from verse 22. Paul says, Wives, submit to your own husbands. And later on, he also says, Husbands, love your wives. These are Commands, right? Right, they're they're laws. But notice how he motivates the Ephesians to obey these laws. He doesn't say, the Bible says so. End of. He says, husbands, look at the way Christ loved the church. On the cross, he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, cleansing her with the word so that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the gospel. Right? Husbands, look at how much Christ sacrificed for you. Look at how much he loved you. Look at that first. And then go sacrifice and love your wife in the same way. Give you a second example quickly, and that's money. Now, some preachers might say something along the lines of if you give to God, God will give to you. If you bless God, God will bless you. But that's not what Paul does. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see that Paul was trying to raise money from the wealthy Corinthians to support poor Jerusalem churches. And this is how he does it in 2 Corinthians 8, from verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. 
For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't guilt trip them, right? He's like, hey, you got so much money, you better give some away to the poor. But he points to the generosity of Jesus. Right? If Jesus, who had all the riches of heaven, became poor so that you might become rich, if Jesus, who gave up everything for you, he gave up even his own life on the cross so that you might become rich spiritually, can you also, in response, give up your material resources for the sake of your brothers and sisters who are struggling, who are poor, and I'm thinking of Ukraine right now. So, brothers and sisters, how can we grow in gospel fluency? So, leaning heavily on the teaching of Keller and Van der Stel, I've come up with a three-step method that I'd love to share with you. I hope that you can apply it in your lives. And they, these are steps are. For step one, think of the last time. So, this is a, kind of a self-reflective exercise. Think of the last time you overreacted to something. Now, step two, ask yourself, what were the lies that I believed in that moment or what were the idols that I was cherishing in my heart and then reject those lies and idols? And then step three, ask yourself, what specific truth of the gospel corresponds to the lie or in what way is Jesus better than the idol that I am cherishing? And then believe that truth and rejoice in Christ. So let me share with you a personal example of how this might work. So uh, as I told you before, I've got two sons. One of them is three. Uh, the other is four months. So a couple of weeks ago, my older son, Austin, he asked me to go, can I, Dad, can I go to the beach? Right? Or he didn't really ask. He's like, I want to go beach. <laughs> so it was my day off. It was my day off. So I took everyone to the beach, right? Even though it was fairly late in the day. So my son, Austin, he loves the water. He was in there, he was just playing with it for two hours, you know. Time was passing, it was getting really late. And, uh, you know, I had my other son, uh, Kieran, he's a baby, he's getting cranky. And my wife, Callie, it's like, oh, it's dinner time, we need to go back, we need to go cook, cook dinner. And me, I needed, just needed to use the toilet. So I, I go to Austin and I say, hey, Austin, we, we need to go Right? Like, it's time to go home. Come on, son. You've been playing here for hours. But he just refused to come out of the water. We asked him again and again, and he just kept refusing. And, and understand, like, I, I wasn't really planning to go in the water, so I'm kind of wearing all normal clothes. I'm not in my bathers or anything, right? I was like, do I have to go in the water to get him out? My goodness, this guy. <laughs> so eventually, that's what I do, right? No, I, no, I don't, actually. I kind of stealthily wait for him to sort of wade to the edge of the, the thing, right? and just like pluck him out real quick. And by this time, he's just, he's, he's mad. He's mad at me. He's just kicking and screaming. I just carry him to the car. He's... But he's angry with me, but I'm, I'm way angrier with him. I was so angry with Austin. And here I was thinking to myself, you know what, Austin? This is in my mind. I brought everyone here for your sake, Austin. And you ruin my day off. This is my day off. And I'm trying to rest 
here listening to a podcast by the beach. And I bring him to the car, just chuck him to the back. <laughs> I'm just taking off his wet clothes. And I just start, sh- I just start shouting at him. I just shout at him like, Austin, you are, you are a disobedient child. Why do you not obey your father and your mother? Why? And then Kelly was falling with Kieran and she was not happy with me because I was causing a scene. And as she rightly says, I, I was too harsh. I was too harsh with Austin. And she's right. And I, and I reflected on that incident and asked myself, why, why did I overreact? And I realized it's because I felt disrespected. You know, I was thinking, you know what, son? As a kid, I... As, when I was your age, I would never disobey a direct command from my dad. I would be absolutely flogged. And all the Asian kids say amen. <laughs> so, it's right. Is it not right for me to want to be respected by my kids? Is that, is that wrong for me to want to be respected by my kids? Well, the Bible actually says in one of the Ten Commandments, right, you know what? Honor your father and mother. But my reaction revealed that this was an over desire. I wanted it too much. You see, idols, they're often not bad things, right? I'm not struggling with, like, I've got, like, you know, Vishnu over here and, like, Lotus Flower Kuan Yin over here in my room, right? It's not, it's not. Bad things, but there are good things that we desire too much. There are things that we desire more than we desire God. And in that moment, I wanted respect from my son more than I wanted God. That was my idol. And as a result, I behaved in a shameful way. What was the lie that I believed? You know, this is what I believe. I believe, hey, you know what? I gave up my time. I gave up my energy to bring you, Austin, to this beach. And so I deserve obedience and I deserve respect as a result. But you know what? That's, that's not the gospel. In the gospel, Jesus dies for us, all of us, while we were yet sinners. We had nothing to offer him at that point. And yet he still willingly laid down his life for us. And here I was thinking, hey, you know what? I'm such a great dad. I'm a gracious father because I brought you to the beach instead of doing something else that I wanted to do. But deep down, it was just a form of works righteousness, right? Because I was doing it expecting something in return. But unlike me, unlike me, Jesus is worthy of the highest respect, honor, and glory. And yet not only did he empty himself of his glory and his majesty when he put on flesh in the incarnation, he also allowed himself to be disrespected, to be denigrated in the worst ways possible. Right? The, the Roman soldiers mocked him, they spit on him, they beat him, and finally they hung him naked on a cross. And he did that for me. Despite my shameful actions towards my own son, despite many shameful actions throughout my whole life, 
And instead, what he does is he covers my shame and he clothes me with his righteousness. And he seats me with him on his heavenly throne. And it's only when I rejoice in these gospel truths, these specific ones, can I put to death my idol and reject the lies of the enemy. So again, these three things. Step one, think of a time you overreacted. Go home tonight, try this out. Identify what are the lies that you might have believed of the enemy. What are idols? What are things, good things that you over-desire? And three, how can you apply specific gospel truths to those idols, to those lies, and instead rejoice in Christ? And if I can ask you to do one more thing, just one more, is don't do this alone. Practice confession and gospelizing. You can make it a verb. And so confess your sins to a brother or a sister whom you trust, so not just some random. <laughs> and then practice speaking the truths of the gospel to each other and pray for one another. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to who? Not the priests, to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Finally, let me paraphrase the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who says, The word of the gospel in my mouth, sorry, the word of the gospel in the mouth of my brother or my sister is stronger than the word of the gospel in my own heart. We need to hear the gospel from each other. Brothers and sisters, can I challenge you here? at CU, at Christian Union, to be a gospel-centered community. May you be a gospel-centered community that is growing in your understanding of gospel theology, that is striving to live out gospel culture and learning to apply the gospel to all aspects of life in gospel fluency. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Monash Christian Union Bible Talk. We long to see everyone at Monash University know a disciple-making disciple of Jesus Christ. If you have been blessed by this ministry and would love to support Monash Christian Union, you can do so via the link in the podcast description.